Morning, everybody. Thank you. I appreciate that. Welcome back for week five of Foundations. This journey that we've been taking together as a church to develop a deeper faith. A faith that not only brings meaning and purpose and peace into our lives, but a faith that's deep and strong enough to weather even the most devastating storms of life. Now, for those of you who are new, or if you've been out the last couple of weeks, this series, this study, is based on an illustration that Jesus used at the end of his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus tells a story of two men who built houses, similar houses built on very different foundations. One man, Jesus said, built his house on the ground that was available. Unfortunately, that was sandy soil. The other man, Jesus said, took the time, made the effort, and was intentional about digging down below the sand to get to the rock. And then on that rock, he laid the foundation on which his house would be built. Now, everything was fine for both men until a storm hit. And when the storm came, it beat against both houses. And Jesus said, the house that was built on sand fell with a mighty crash. But the house that was built on the rock weathered the storm. Now, I can just imagine the people hearing Jesus tell this story, nodding their heads like some of you are, like, yes, yeah, that makes sense, right? It's, it's obvious if you build a house on a rock, that house is going to be stronger than one that's built on the sand. And they're like, yeah, we get it, Jesus. But then Jesus connects the dots between that story in our lives. Notice what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6 there on the top of your outline. See, Jesus says, when someone comes to me, listens to my teachings, and then follows it, it is like a person building a house who digs deep and lays the foundation on solid rock. You understand what Jesus is saying? He's saying the the strength of your faith is directly proportional to the level of of your obedience, of doing the things that Jesus tells us to do. That's why Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then don't do what I say? You you can't have it both ways. You got to do it. So each week, we've been looking at different ways to do it, different ways to dig down to get to the rock. Practical ways to put the teachings of Jesus in play in our lives. That's what we've done every week for the last four weeks. But today, we're going to flip the script. What I mean by that is instead of talking about another way to be obedient to Jesus, another way to dig deep toward the foundation, we want to talk about the heart of the digger. The heart behind why we dig. Because the Bible says faith without works is dead, but we also need to understand that works without a heart of worship is just dead in 
religion. Listen to what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 15. Jesus says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, and their teachings are merely human rules. Now, you have to understand, Jesus was talking to a a group of people who were some of the most obedient people to the Bible ever in all of human history. These people were all about the rules. They were all about doing the right thing. The problem was they weren't digging down to a deeper foundation. They weren't being obedient to honor God. They were being obedient to honor themselves. They were being obedient so that other people would look at them and be impressed by them. And I can just tell you, if we're not careful, we can fall into that same trap. That digging a deeper foundation won't be about us honoring God. It'll just be about us having a bigger house that other people can see. And so this morning, here's what I want to do. I want to talk about developing a heart of a worshiper. To developing a heart for worship. Now before we look at this, I think it's important that we're all on the same page when it comes to worship. So let's do a little word association, right? I'm going to say a word and then you tell me, well you don't have to tell me, but you think about what is the first thing that comes into your mind when you hear the word worship? What do you think about? I think for a lot of us we think about what we're doing here now. Right? We're gathered in a worship center. You know, we're singing worship songs. We are gathered for worship. Some of us are even more specific than that. We think about worship in, in terms of the, the songs that we sing, the praises that we sing. You know, the first 25 minutes of the worship service is the worship time. Some of us think about worship in terms of a, a mood or a feel or an ambiance, an emotion. Right? We think about worship in that soft, reflective, quiet part of the service. Some of us think of worship in the, you know, the big, loud, proud, excited, clapping, raising hands, all of those things. We all have different kind of concepts of what really resonates with us for worship. And you need to understand, while all of those things are a part of worship, none of them are worship in total because worship is not an event and worship is not an emotion worship is a way of life worship is about living my life in response to who God is and what he has done for me worshiping is living as if I really believe that God is in control and that God loves me And has a plan and a purpose for my life. Living my life every day, every situation, every attitude based on who God is and what he's done for me. So what I'm saying is if we're going to dig a deeper foundation of faith with the right heart, then there are a couple of things I think Jesus teaches us that we have to be willing to do. Four I want to look at. Number one, to develop the heart of a worshiper, the first thing I have to do is start with surrender. Start with surrender. 
Surrender is essential to worship. Surrender is ultimately what worship is. You you can't worship God and continue to try to be God of your own life. You have to surrender. You ever wondered why sometimes when we're maybe singing a worship song, you'll notice some of us raising our hands up like this? Or maybe just one hand and you're like, what? Do they have a question? What are they doing? They're trying to get their deodorant to dry. You know, what's going on here? Why do people do that? Why do we do that? Well, a couple of reasons behind that. One, the Bible says that God desires that we lift up holy hands in worship. For some of us, it's the expression of like a child coming to a father, you know, hold me. But ultimately, we do this because this is the international symbol of surrender, right? This is what people do when they surrender. But here's what I want all of us to understand. It does not matter if you raise your hands if your heart is not surrendered. It has to be inside. It doesn't matter what you do or say outwardly. You have to surrender your heart to God. And let's be honest, in our culture, that's not an easy thing to do. That cuts against the grain of kind of how we live in this land of the free, the the home of the brave. This idea of surrender, it's like, no, never give up, never give in. That's what we think surrender is. But look what the Bible says about surrender, Romans 6.13. It says, give yourselves to God. Surrender your whole being to him to be used for righteous purposes. So you understand, surrender is not giving up or giving in. Surrender is giving myself over to be used for something bigger than myself. To surrender my desires, my wants, my dreams, my plans for a bigger dream, a bigger plan, a bigger purpose that God has for every one of us. See, here's the thing I've learned about surrendering to God. It's a lot easier to do when life makes sense. It's a lot easier to surrender to God when, when things are working out. The real test of surrender is will you throw up your hands and bow your heart when life doesn't make sense. Can you do that when you have so many unanswered questions? When God asks you to do or go through things that you don't understand. Surrendering when obedience doesn't make sense is the heart of worship. There's a great picture of this in Jesus' first encounter with the disciple Peter. Because before Peter was the disciple Peter, he was a fisherman. He was in the fishing business. That was the family business. It's pretty much all he knew and all he had done. One day, he and his partners were parked their boats on the lake shore. They'd been out all night fishing, hadn't caught a thing. 
And they're just sitting there cleaning their nets. Jesus just so happened to be on the same lake shore teaching a crowd. In fact, he borrowed Peter's boat to be able to use it as a platform so people could hear him speak. When Jesus got done preaching, he turned around and said to Peter, let's go fishing. Now think about this. Peter had been out fishing all night long. Hadn't caught a thing, you know. And, and I'm sure Peter was thinking, this is not a good night. There are no fish out there. The moon's not right. The, whatever. The, this is not a good time to go fishing. And Jesus said, Peter, I think the problem is you've been casting your nets on the wrong side of the boat. Right? You can imagine Peter, right? Yeah. Oh, that's it. You, you're a preacher. What? I've been fishing all my life. You think I've just been on the wrong side? Of the... What would be the difference? It's like five feet over. That's going to change everything. That'd be my response. But look at Peter's response, Luke 5, 5. It says, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because what? You say so. I will let down the nets. Peter didn't throw the nets on the other side of the boat because he thought it might work. He said it because he was willing to surrender his heart to Jesus. Willing to do what God asked. When what God asked doesn't make sense. So let me ask you a question. What is God asking you to do right now that doesn't make sense to you? What is God asking you to do that doesn't make sense? Maybe for some of you, it's to trust God with this circumstance when trusting God seems like it's the last thing you ought to do. Maybe for some, it's offering forgiveness to that person that you can't begin to imagine that you could forgive. Or maybe, maybe it's reaching out to help to be honest with your struggle, your depression, your thought life, to be honest, to reach out to help when reaching out to, for help seems like it is the last thing you ought to do. The heart of a worshiper begins with a heart willing to surrender to God. Number two, the second thing you have to do is to remember your audience. Remember your audience. We have a saying here at Cedar Creek Church, and that is that we worship for an audience of one. In fact, that was actually the name of the very first CD that our very first praise team produced. It was called An Audience of One. That phrase is a reminder to us that it is not about us. That worship is not about us. The purpose of worship it's me pleasing God, not about what pleases me. In fact, look at what the Bible says, Romans 8.8. It says, those people who are ruled by their sinful selves cannot please God. In other words, self-centeredness and worship are mutually exclusive. You can't have both at the same time. When selfishness walks in, Worship walks out. When true worship walks in, self-centeredness has to walk out. And it's so critical for us to understand this in every context of worship, but especially in the context of corporate worship. 
what we're doing here this morning because the perception is that we are the audience, right? I mean, look at how this is arranged on our campuses. It's rows of seats facing toward a stage. The lights, the camera, everything is focused on what is happening up here. And it's very easy to get the idea that the performance is up here and the audience is out here. But nothing could be further from the truth. Everything that happens up here, the music, the message, the prayer, everything that happens up here is for an audience of one. And everything that happens out here should be for an audience of one. We are not here to consume good worship. We are here to offer up good worship. Here's how I know we all struggle with this, and I'm on this list too. Here's how I know this is a struggle. Because if we come on a Sunday morning and the band sings songs that we like with the singer that we like, or the preacher preaches a message that resonates with exactly what's going on in my life today, if that happens, we walk out and go, worship was great today. But if it's not the songs we like or the singers we like or the message seems like it's not relevant to our life, we walk out and say, worship was not that good today. But here's what I want us all to understand. The Bible says in Hebrews that we are to worship God, come into his presence with holy fear and awe because our God is a consuming fire. Did you catch that? Our God is a consuming fire. We are not coming in here to consume worship. We are coming in here to be consumed by the one we come to worship. you got to understand who your worship is for. It's not for the people sitting around you. It's not for anybody else. It is for God. Do you know who I think is one of the greatest worshipers in all of Scripture, John the Baptist. Now, some of you are thinking, wait a minute, I thought you were going to say David, King David. You know, he wrote all those worship songs and psalms. I, I never thought about crazy John the Baptist, you know, living out in the wilderness with animal skins and baptizing people. Philip, why would you say he's a great worshiper? Here's why, because of his heart. Because you see, when John the Baptist came on the scene, he was the biggest, hottest thing in town. His ministry grew. He was packing the place out. Everybody was talking about it. The spotlight was on John for about a year until Jesus came on the scene. Now, all of a sudden, people were talking about Jesus. Spotlight was on Jesus. Some of John's closest followers left John and became disciples of Jesus. And that freaked John's disciples out. They came to him and said, John, we got to do something. We're losing people to the Jesus team. we got to do something. And I love John's response. Do you see it there? John 3, verse 30. John says, he, talking about, he must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. True worship results in less of me and more of Jesus. So let me ask you a question. This digging you've been doing for the last month or so, these practical things you've been doing like consistently spending time, focusing on Jesus and his word every day, 
serving within the church and outside the church, connecting with others in authentic community to serve, to love, to hold each other accountable. All of this digging that you've been doing, is it making much of you or is it making much of Jesus? Is it pointing people to Jesus or is it creating admirers of how spiritual you are? See, worship, there's only one audience, and it ain't us. Number three, the third thing that Jesus teaches us about worship is that it has to be authentic and accurate. Worship has to be authentic and accurate. You know, I think one of the most interesting encounters that Jesus has is with that Samaritan woman at the well. A lot of you are familiar with this story because preachers love to preach on this story. It gets a lot of airtime in our sermons, and most of the time when we preach on this encounter, we either focus on the idea of reaching across cultural lines because Jesus was a Jew, she was a Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans hated each other, and yet Jesus reached out spoke to her, talked with her, sat with her. So it's a great passage to talk about crossing cultural barriers. Sometimes we preach on this passage and we talk about the impact reaching one person can have. Because by reaching this one Samaritan woman, when she went back in the village, the whole village came out and met Jesus. So it's a great passage to focus on how to reach a community by just beginning to reach one person. But I think what we often miss about this encounter is what it teaches us about worship. Because if you read the passage, you see that a big part of Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman had to do with worship. Because Jews and Samaritans worshiped the same God, they just worshiped in very different ways. Jews had to go to Jerusalem and offer their sacrifices and worship on the Temple Mount in the center of Jerusalem. But Samaritans worshipped on a, a different mountain in a different part. And she says, hey, what's up with that if you know so much about God? What's up with that? We worship who's right. And notice Jesus responds to her question with what I think is his clearest expression or teaching about worship. John 4, 23, Jesus says, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. In spirit and in truth. What does that mean? That means authentic and accurate. To worship in the Spirit means that what's really going on inside of you is what you are expressing to God. Authentic is about being real 
with God. Real worship is about being real with God. See, some of us get this idea that when we come in here for corporate worship, we're supposed to leave our questions and our pains and our struggles out in the parking lot, come in here, paint on a happy face, raise our hands, sing songs, clap, cheer, smile, and then pick up our baggage on the, week, on the way out and carry it with us for the rest of the week. But let me tell you, that is the exact opposite of what worship is. We don't leave our junk out. We bring it in here. We bring our pain. We bring our questions. We bring our struggles and we lay them at the feet of Jesus, being real with God. I mean, do you really think you're fooling God when you're pretending that you're okay, that you don't have questions, that you're not angry with God? Do you think you're fooling him by just pretending to worship him? Let me tell you something. The deepest level of worship you will ever experience will come out of your greatest pain. If I've learned nothing in the last six months since the death of our son, is that worshiping God in your pain, Pouring out your questions, your frustrations, your fear, pouring them out, being real with God brings you closer to Him than you may have ever been before. Worship has to be authentic. But worship also has to be accurate. We don't worship the God of our own understanding. We don't worship the God who we've created in our mind that makes sense and fits in our neat little boxes. We worship the God who is based on who he has revealed himself to be through the truth of his word. See, that's why it's so important to dig into the word. Because this is how God is revealing himself to us all the time. The Word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And the more you get into it, the more you understand who God is, the less you understand about God in a lot of ways, but the more accurate your worship can be. That's so important in our current culture. You do understand we live in a culture where there is no absolute truth. It's, if you're sincere, that's all that matters. If you really are sincere, your truth, you have your truth, I have my truth. And as long as you're sincere in your truth, that's all that matters. Well, let me tell you something. That can't apply to worship, folks. Because you can't worship the God that you want him to be. You can't worship the God that makes sense to you. You can't worship the God that fits your agenda and is your genie in the bottle. You have to worship the God who is. And let me tell you something. He don't always make sense to us. But do you really want to worship a God that you can figure out? Do you really want to worship a God that you can put into your box? Or would you rather worship a God who is way too amazing to totally understand, but in love has revealed himself to you and given you everything you need to know to trust him? Worship has to be authentic and accurate. Otherwise, you're just playing a game and wasting time. The number four, finally, most importantly, the heart of a worshiper is developed when I recognize that 
I have to make it a lifestyle. Worship, I have to make it a lifestyle. Honoring God with every part of my life. Which is difficult because we are compartmentalizers, right? We have all these different compartments, these elements of our life. We have our work compartment, our family compartment, our marriage compartment, our children compartment, our hobbies compartment. We have all these different slices of our pie, and we think we can just add Jesus as another slice. And we think the goal is to make my Jesus slice bigger than it used to be, to just give Jesus a little bit more of my pie. But that's not what God desires. Jesus doesn't want to be a bigger piece of your pie. He wants to be the filling of every piece of your pie. And you see this throughout all of Jesus' life. From the very beginning. You remember when Jesus was about 12 and his family went to Jerusalem for the feast celebration? And it was over. Mary and Joseph left and they didn't realize that Jesus was not with them. When they realized that he wasn't there, they ran back into Jerusalem, looked everywhere for him. They found him in the temple and they said, Mary said, why would you do this? Why would you treat us this way? And you remember Jesus' answer, right? It's there on your outline, Luke 2.49. Jesus says, did you not know that I must be about my father's business. You understand, this was not just a line from a teenager who had gotten busted by his mom. This was a declaration of a lifestyle that Jesus would spend every moment of every day being about his father's business. That's a worship lifestyle. Everything he did was pointing people to the father. Everything he did was to make much of the Father. The same thing is true for us. That's why Paul tells us in Romans 12:1. He says, "Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as what? What does that say? I can't hear you. What does it say? Circle that. Living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper Worship. Now, here's what you need to understand. Paul wrote these words to a group of people who knew all about sacrificial worship. Their whole system of, sac- of worship was built on sacrifice. That certain times throughout the year, they were to bring the, the best of the flock, the best of the crops, and bring them, offer them as a sacrifice to God for the atonement of sins. But you need to understand, you didn't pick out the sacrificial lamb on the day of worship. You didn't just look at your flock and go, oh, let me take this one. No. It had to be the best of the best, spotless, without any flaws. And so when you had a a lamb born into your flock that was healthy and looked good and had clean markings, you knew from the moment that lamb was born, that that's going to be the sacrificial lamb. And you treated it differently. You protected it. You raised it its whole life. And so when Paul says, you have to be a living sacrifice, they understood this is to be a part of every part of my life. Now think about this. Think about the impact of this. 
What if you were to live every day as if you really believe that God was in control and that he loved you and had a plan and purpose for your life? If you really believe that and lived every day based on that truth, do you think it might change some of the attitudes that you have right now? Do you think it might change how you see and go through the stormy circumstances of your life? Because when you, when you live a life of worship, it changes not only the way you dig, but how you live every part of every day of your life. Would you pray with me? Father, I stand before these people that I love so much and confess that I struggle to worship. Not on Sunday mornings, but I struggle to worship when I'm in a hospital waiting room. I struggle to worship at the funeral home. I struggle to worship when I sit down to pay the bills. I struggle to worship when I'm passed over at work or with my friends. So, Father, I stand before you desiring to be a worshiper, but I need your help. And, Father, I'm pretty sure I'm not alone in this struggle. So I pray for all of us, all these friends, these people called Cedar Creek Church that I care so much about. Father, would you help us live out our worship? As we dig, as we continue to be obedient to you, would you give us hearts surrendered to you and that every shovel that we dig, every house or structure that we build, may it point people to you. May it make much of you. Father, help us to become less and less so that you can become more and more. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.